Our message today is going to be from Proverbs chapter 30, and I realized that, that Patrick last week preached out of Proverbs chapter 30, so I hope there's not too much overlap, but I talked to him, and I think we're, I think we're okay. Um, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm not going to read just yet, I want to say a few words of introduction. Let's pray before we start. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that's given to us in this, in this book of Proverbs. We thank you that you teach us through everything you do how amazing you are. And you teach us to come to you, to seek you in humbleness and in wonder and amazement at your person and your creation and your work. Father, I, I pray that you use the words that I speak today. Father, touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, uh, I was blessed to attend a conference at Union University. I went with Connie and a couple other folks from church, and it was really cool. It was organized by Dr. Van Nest. Um, some of you who've had some association at Union might know exactly who I'm talking about. But he was our daughter Rachel's Old Testament teacher, and he's the father of one of her good friends at school. But the conference was titled Ref 500 because it was time to coincide with the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the theses on the church door at Wittenberg. And uh, we went to this conference, and I don't go to a lot of theological conferences. I'm not formally trained as a theologian. Um, so this was pretty, a pretty neat thing for me. Uh, the content of the conference was all about the impact and the ongoing influence of the Protestant Reformation, not, not only on the church, but on the world at large. There were many, many speakers there. Some were well-known and some less so. Some spoke in a very approachable, accessible way, and some were a little bit more academic. Um, but I took lots and lots of notes. I, I really tuned in. I went to all the sessions that I could go and took notes in every one. So I learned a lot, and I had kind of fun feeling a little bit academic, mixing it up with all these theologians and, and pastors and, and different uh, Bible teachers. Um, but I specifically remember one of the, one of the lectures was one of the more well-known speakers, and this guy's had a long and distinguished career. He's written a lot of books, he's got a podcast, um, he's got an active Twitter account that people pay attention to, um, but his name's Peter Lightheart. And um, so I was, I was really anxious to hear what this guy would have to say because he's got such a reputation. Well, let me tell you, he opened his mouth and within a few minutes, I no longer had any illusions of being a Bible scholar or even possibly belonging at this conference because every word he spoke either flew right over my head or past my ears and it made whizzing noises as it went by. I didn't understand a word this man was saying. He was referring to all these academic concepts and books and things that I had not been exposed to. Um, I'm sure it was a brilliant lecture, but I wouldn't know. I've, I felt like a complete idiot in this guy's presence. And, and that is what, what Augur, our author of, of Proverbs chapter 30, is expressing. He says he's, he's actually going to contribute to the Holy Scripture, right? This, this word that he's writing is now recorded in Scripture right alongside the words of Solomon. And we have them. He's going to speak an oracle, he says, on God's behalf. But what was his assessment of his own intellect and spiritual knowledge? 
He says, I am more stupid than any other person, and I lack a human's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. How could he say this? Well, let's dig in and look a little bit at the chapter. I actually want to read the whole chapter um, because I'm going to touch on points from, from all over the place. So I'm going to read it if you'll bear with me. It's a, it's a little bit longer than our typical focal passage, but I think that's okay. And listen as I read. Uh, he sounds a little different than Solomon, this, this Augur uh, author. Um, he kind of has a different, a different tone to how he speaks. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs chapter 30. The words of Augur, son of Jake, the pronouncement, the man's oration to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. I am more stupid than any other person, and I lack a human's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words, or he will rebuke you, and you will be proved a liar. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Don't slander a servant to his master, or he will curse you, and you will become guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filth. There is a generation, how haughty its eyes and pretentious its looks. There is a generation whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, devouring the oppressed from the land and the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, a childless womb. Earth, which is never satisfied with water. And fire, which never says enough. As for the eye that ridicules a father and despises obedience to a mother, may ravens of the valley pluck it out and young vultures eat it. Three things are too wondrous for me, four I can't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship at sea, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. The earth trembles under three things. It cannot bear up under four. A servant when he becomes king, a fool when he's stuffed with food, an unloved woman when she marries, and a servant girl when she ousts her queen. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are not a strong people, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes are not a mighty people, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. Locusts have no king, yet all of them march in ranks. A lizard can be caught in your hands, yet it lives in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their stride. Four are stately in their walk. A lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and doesn't retreat before anything. A strutting rooster, a goat, and a king at the head of his army. If you've been foolish by exalting yourself, or if you've been scheming, put your hand over your mouth. For the churning of milk produces butter, and a twisting a nose draws blood. And stirring up anger produces strife. 
This is the word of the Lord. All right, I really enjoyed going through this this week. I don't. I usually pick a smaller passage, but uh, do you notice the different voice? Can you hear the different voice of Augur versus Solomon? He, he sounds like a different person. Well, he is a different person, we think. Um, so Solomon speaks in a very direct way. Solomon tells us these things are true, these things are wise, these things are good, these things are noble, and they're reliable. He's simply teaching and telling from the vast store of wisdom that God gave him. And he's, and he's poetic too, but he's very direct. Augur is a man who's more interested in what he doesn't know or understand. He's interested in the mystery. He's relishing the mystery of God Himself and His creation. He places no confidence in his own knowledge. Solomon spends a great deal of ink to teach us to be humble and to warn us not to be proud. And Augur shows us and illustrates what this humility looks like because he's focusing on the limits of our wisdom. So Augur organized his chapter and he, he made several lists. It's an interesting, interesting approach. He makes lists. There's a list of questions about God right at the beginning. He has a list of requests to God. There in verses 7 through 9. He has a list of descriptions of a wicked generation. And then that includes, as sort of an attachment, a list of illustrations from nature, of things that just can't be satisfied. He has has some lists of observations that he's made from nature. A list of wondrous things that he can't understand in nature. A list of small animals. They're humble little animals endowed by God with great wisdom. Interesting. Interesting. And then he has a list of things that walk in a stately way. So, as an outline, and to kind of give you a heads up of where I'm headed, I had three, three topics. The limits of our knowledge of God. The limits of our knowledge of God. And the principle that I want to draw out of that is that the mystery of God's person leads us to worship. The limits of our knowledge of creation. Because the mystery of God's creation leads us to wonder. The limits of our own righteousness, because our own sinful hearts cause us to depend on Him for righteousness. So what about our limits of our knowledge of God? In verse 2, Augur begins his pronouncement by saying, I am more stupid than any other person. I have no knowledge of the Holy One. And then he asks a series of questions. He asks, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son, if you know? Now these are questions, if we put them to our Sunday school children, many of them could give us the answers for every single one of these questions, right? Does Augur not know the answers himself? I think he does know the simple answers as we could do in a fill-in-the-blank. But he's not asking for information. He's marveling at the mystery of how these things could even be done. Who has gone up into heaven and come back down? Two answers to that. One, no created being has done this, right? So he's asking a question and there's no answer to it. He's saying that no mere mortal can have any detailed knowledge of the things of heaven. No one has made the trip. He's saying, I don't know anything because I haven't been and nobody else has been to come and tell me about it. 
But the second answer is our reliable Sunday school answer, isn't it? What's the Sunday school answer? It's Jesus. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? But this was written 900 years before Jesus was born. Augur didn't have the benefit of this knowledge yet, so he considered it a rhetorical question. But Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.13, No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is answering Augur's question, although it's a little bit backwards, because Augur's talking about making the trip up and then back. Jesus is talking about making the trip down and then back. Very interesting. Augur asks us, Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up waters in a cloak? And who has established all the ends of the earth? If this reminds you of you of Job, I think there's good reason. Because Job asked God for answers, and God's answers were, Where were you? Where were you, Job? When I stretched out the skies, when I created the heavens and the earth, when I did all these things. Job's, God's answer to Job was a bunch of questions. And now Augur's asking these questions. So the obvious answer to this question is God. God did these things. But is Augur really playing such a simple quiz? No, no, clearly not. He's saying, don't give, me, don't give me easy answers to these deep questions. I've thought about them, and my conclusion is, I don't know anything. Because that's what he just told us. I don't know anything. So he's reveling in the depth and the mystery. It's not a Jeopardy quiz. It's a philosophy lesson meant to humble us. He's asking us to visualize the power and the scale of a being who can do these things, who can take up the waters, who can establish the earth from, its, from end to end. Just think about it. who can do that. That's what he's saying. Don't just fill in the blank. Picture it in your mind. Imagine what power, what scale it takes to do that. And then finally, Augur asks, what is his name? And what is the name of his son, if you know? Now that's quite a question, isn't it? And again, if we paid attention in Sunday school, we may know the answers to this, right? This is a slow-pitch question. What is the name that Moses was given for God? You can answer. I am. That is the answer that God told Moses when Moses said, well, who should I tell him sent me? God said, tell him I am sent you. Okay, that's our answer. Do you think Augur didn't know that? Augur knew that. He's not asking for a simple answer, but he's challenging us. What kind of name is that? What kind of name is that? What can we know about that? It's a profound name, certainly. And you could preach a whole sermon on just the name of God, I am, just that one label. It proclaims eternality. It proclaims self-existence. But is it really His name, or is it just, is it just one thing that, that God revealed to Moses at that time? And Augur is asking us, what do you really think you know about God, mortal? What do you think you know? Because you're limited, and He's not. And that's the point of all these questions. The, the questions sound easy if we look at them like a Sunday school quiz. And the answers are Jesus, God, 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 I am, and Jesus. Right? Those are the answers to Augur's questions. If it was that simple, it wouldn't be worth writing down, would it? Augur's saying, no, I want you to think about these questions. 
think about what we're implying and what we're understanding about this, this being. He's calling on us to meditate on the mystery, the power, the complete otherness of God. This God is too big, He's too powerful, and too mysterious to comprehend. It's good and right to study His Word. There are things we can know about Him. And, and we need to know everything that we possibly can. We should. But for everything that we do learn, more mystery is open. Right? And this shouldn't lead us to pride in our knowledge, but it should lead us to face down worship before this amazing God. When Solomon said that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, this is what he meant. Wisdom is recognizing that all your knowledge and study, you actually know almost nothing out of all that could be known about the infinite God. Wisdom is bowing down in silent amazement, wonder, and worship. And our principle here, that mystery, the mystery of God's person leads us to worship. That's what it ought to do. I ran across, across this quote from Sam Storms, and I thought it was a really cool quote. He said, The ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge, but worship. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead to the joyful praise of God, we failed. We learn only that we might laud, which is to say that theology without doxology is idolatry. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Theology without doxology is idolatry. The only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sung. He's saying that worship is the ultimate intent. If, if we are building up the knowledge in, in ourselves for pride or or to win arguments, or to, to uh, just be satisfied in our own intellect, we're on the wrong track. In fact, it might even be idolatry of our own intellect. He's saying, if your knowledge of God doesn't lead you to bow down and worship of this God, then you're, you're on the wrong track. So does your study of God make you confident in your own knowledge? Are you proud of it? Be careful. You don't have any words published in, this, in God's book I don't either. Augur does. And Augur says, I am stupid and I don't know anything. Right? For everything that you do know, there's a million things you don't know. And a million other questions you don't even know enough to ask. There are questions you don't know to ask. So then we have the limits of our knowledge of creation. Augur gives us three lists about nature and creation to think about. Wondrous things that he can't understand. Small animals endowed by God with wisdom. And things that walk in a stately way. I'm going to read these back really quick. Just kind of hit them. Three things are too wondrous for me. Four I can't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on a rock. The way of a ship at sea. And the way of a man with a young woman. So he's talking about allowing himself to be amazed at these things. These things are common things. right? A bird, a snake, a ship. And a man and a woman, these things are things that you can see anytime, all, all day. These are not unusual, weird things. But he's stepping back and he's saying, wow, but they're amazing things. They're truly amazing. I can't even understand them. How does an eagle fly? Even today, with all our technology, we can be captivated watching birds. I can anyway. I hope that you can. We have planes. I can be captivated watching planes. But the people who invented planes, guess what they were looking at? Birds. 
That's right. Trying to figure out how in the world do these birds fly? How can, how can I learn from what God has done so I can make a machine to imitate it? And they've succeeded. We are imitators of God, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not so good ways. We, we fail to imitate Him correctly. But these birds that we are amazed by, they're common, but that doesn't mean they're not amazing. How about a snake on a rock? Think about a snake moving on a smooth rock. It has no feet, no legs. How does it move? A smooth rock? Well, a scientist who's broken it down can explain the physics of how it moves. It, it is, it's an amazing thing, but it's, it's understandable at, at a certain physical level. But if you back up and just kind of see it, you think, my goodness, who thought of this? How does this work? And we know who thought of it. So if you, if you look at the science of it and remove all the wonder of it, you've, you've missed the point here. Augur is saying, yeah, I know the snake can move on a rock, but wow, the snake can move on a rock. That's amazing. How about a ship in the water? It's another neat thing to think about. Silently pushed by the wind. He's looking at a ship. And you know, I don't see Jim in here, but Jim's a sailor. And it's fascinating. Oh, there's Jim. It's fascinating because I used to sail with Jim and he taught me about tacking. And you can actually move your ship against the wind. The wind that's pushing you and you can go against it. It's an amazing phenomenon. How does it work? Well, a physicist could tell you, a sailor could even tell you, but to just sit there and watch it, that's what Augur's doing. He's watching it. He's saying, this is amazing. It's amazing. It's a wonder. The last one is different, but not completely different. The way of a man with a young woman or a husband and a wife, he's amazed that men and women come together all the time. It is not uncommon. It happens billions of times in this world. But... It is amazing what God has done. He's made them to be together. And, it, and it's, he's just thinking, wow. Wow, you could, have, you could have made us any way and this is how you did it. It's amazing. So, then he talks about these little animals. I'm going to read this. Four things on earth are small, yet they're extremely wise. Ants are not a strong people, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes are not a mighty people. Yet they make their homes in the cliffs. Locusts have no king, yet all of them march in ranks. A lizard can be caught in your hands, yet it lives in king's palaces. Ants, hyraxes, locusts, and lizards. Common, unremarkable animals. But Augur is saying, common, yes, unremarkable, no. And you know what ants and lizards are. We have those. When, you, when he says locusts, think grasshopper. And when he says hyrax... This is actually an animal we don't have around here, but they're a small kind of groundhog-looking thing, and they live in rocks and cliffs and things like that. So he's saying that the hyraxes live in the cliffs, which is remarkable. But what is he really saying? I would submit to you, he's, he's given us a message about pride in our own achievements. So he says, I think he's saying to us, have you stored up resources for your own future security? Good. You're like an ant. That's how, that's how awesome you are. You're like an ant. Because God has given the ants the ability to do that. Have you made yourself a home in a high place where you can be above everyone else and have an awesome view? Good. You're like a hyrax, a rodent, 
little groundhog looking thing. Have you assembled an army and collected organized power that you can wield? Good. You're like a locust, a grasshopper. How proud do you feel about that? Do you live in a palace fit for a king? Good. So do lizards. Yeah. So Augur is putting us in our place here. As amazing as we think we are, God has made humble little animals that do what we just what we aspire to. Right? Yeah. Verses 29 through 31, then he continues. He says three things are stately in their stride, four stately in their walk. A lion, which is mightiest among beasts and doesn't retreat before anything. A strutting rooster, a goat, and a king at the head of his army. So again, he's sending us a message of humility. The lion indeed is a symbol, an archetype of power, nobility, authority, He is the absolute top of the food chain. He's the top of any pecking order in nature. He's the very image of unchallengeable authority. And yet, he walks in a stately way with confidence and with dignity. And then Augur mentions some other things that also walk that way. A strutting rooster, a goat, and a king before his army. Now this is interesting. The goat walks with the same confidence as a lion. But we don't consider the goat to be regal or intimidating. Actually, its pride is kind of funny to us. How about a rooster? He thinks he's in control of everything he sees. Right? But he is an axe chop away from the soup pot at any given time. People who have chickens, you know. And the roosters, they get an attitude, right? But they can be put in their place, and their place might be in the pot, and it can happen like that. The goat, he's too stupid to even understand his own limits. His confidence comes from ignorance. He can be headbutting his penmates today, and he can be a Euro sandwich tomorrow. So, what about this king? Well, the prophets are full of warnings and pronouncements against proud kings. We studied Isaiah for half of this year, and there's tons of prophecy in there saying, For you who are proud, who I've used against Israel, I'm coming for you because you were proud. These, these unconquerable kings, God has said, oh, you're conquerable. You are conquerable. Ezekiel, I've been reading Ezekiel lately, and that's, again, he talks about that. Yeah, I used you as a tool. Oh, yeah, I used you. Now it's your turn because you got proud. So he allows, he allows kings to conquer and rule, but when they get proud, he brings judgment and humiliation. So what do all these things have in common? God made them, all of them. And he can take them down as easily as he built them up. I would ask, do you, do you see yourself as a king, as a lion? Be careful. Others may see you as a rooster or a goat. But the one you really need to think about is your creator. Because whatever you do to be proud of can be taken from you in an instant. Just like the rooster, the goat. So our principle from this, all these things, and he's talked about the mysteries of creation, the small animals that do things. The, the animals that walk with pride. And he's talking about the things he sees in nature that give him amazement. And he's, he's reminding us that all these common things that at first glance don't even seem like they should be remarked on, they should lead us to wonder at the creativity and the power of our God. That gives us humility before him. Do you take the, the common for granted? Can you quiet yourself for long enough to just look outside and appreciate the wonder of what he's done? The beauty of a tree. We have trees. 
And we, our symbol is even a tree of our church. Because its size and its strength are amazing. The detail of its leaves, you can, scale, you can look at the large scale, you can look at the small scale. And then if, you, if you're scientific-minded and want to think about the systems and how the thing works, it's amazing. It, it, draws, it draws nutrition from the soil. It sends it up to the leaves. It uses photosynthesis with the sun. Absolutely amazing. And the more you know, the more wonder there is. Honestly, some people think that science takes away wonder. No. It opens up new frontiers of wonder. It's amazing. We see the birds and wonder at them. Even the man-made airplanes can be, can be fascinating to watch. We see the power and the peace of different kinds of weather that can come. And God orchestrates it all. So, the, the final point I want to talk about, the limits of our own righteousness. We had the limits of our knowledge of God, the limits of our knowledge of creation, and now the limits of our own righteousness. Because I want to talk a little bit about verses 7 through 9, and, and I recognize this is partly what Patrick talked about last week. So hopefully there's not too much overlap. But I'm going to read it really quickly. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise I might have too much and deny you saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. This first request that he makes I find fascinating. He says, Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. What is he asking God here? I think at first glance, God, please don't let people deceive me. Protect me from wicked people who would take advantage of me and cheat me. He's depending on God for his protection from deceitful people. And he should. And we should. But this is what I love about Augur. Look at verse 8. Look at it carefully. Because the request can be taken two ways. The second way is, don't let me deceive others. Because he simply says, keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. He's not specific about who's saying those words, is he? It's easy for us to assume, oh, of course those words must be coming from other people because they wouldn't come from me. I don't think Augur is so confident that he's above sinning. And he's saying, God, please, any deceit, any falsehood, keep it away from me, whether it's coming from my mouth or whether it's coming from someone else, because he knows his own sinful heart. He knows that he needs God for any righteousness in his life. And he's saying, God, while you protect me from the lies of others, please don't let me become a liar. It shows a dependence on God for protection and a dependence on God for the grace to be righteous in this world. What humility and what an example of wisdom in practice. The second request in verse 8, give me neither poverty nor wealth. This is also interesting. He knows that if he has too much, he might forget about God and start believing in his own ability to provide. Our sinful hearts can turn God's blessing into pride and sin. Where there should be ever-growing gratitude, we can replace it with self-sufficiency. So Augur is asking God to please keep him out of this situation. He also knows that if he has too little, he might be tempted to steal and break God's law. He knows that his sinful heart is fallible, that given enough outside pressure, he's capable of doing wrong. Augur gets it. He knows, he knows that his heart is sinful. 
even though he has a desire to honor God, he needs God's support to enable that desire and bring it to reality. And this is true humility that leads to wisdom. And this wisdom leads to humility and dependence on God. The principle from this is that our own sinful hearts cause us to depend on Him for righteousness. Augur looked at his own heart and the hearts of others and saw that there's no hope of righteousness without outside help. He asked, what is the name of God's Son? Who has gone up to heaven and come down? We know the name of His Son, Jesus. Jesus who came down from heaven and brought righteousness with Him. So depend on Jesus. Put your trust completely in Him and not in yourself. He gave Himself to pay for your crimes on the cross. And He offers us His righteousness as a gift. Augur's right. We can't earn it. We can only receive it from God. I'll say a few more words of conclusion if, uh, before our response time if the musicians want to go ahead and come on up. As I look at this chapter, brothers and sisters, Augur is preaching the gospel to us from Proverbs. Um, we, we look and we, we want to find Jesus in the Proverbs, and He's there, but sometimes it's hard to see. I feel like in this chapter it's a little easier to see because He's talking, actually directly asking us about the Son of God. And then He's pointing us to our sinful hearts to show us why we need God and why we need Jesus. Because we're sinners. We're subject to condemnation. Without His help, we will do wrong. We will be tricked by liars, and we will be liars tricking others. We will be proud and ungrateful as we eat from the plenty that He has provided. We'll steal when we feel He hasn't provided enough. We will be silly goats who think they're mighty lions. We'll be shallow students who can ace a Sunday school quiz and still miss the wonder of the Creator of all things, failing to worship Him for who He is. So if you've not trusted Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. Kevin or I would be happy to talk to you about that. This chapter calls us to recognize the wonder and the mystery of His creation. It also calls us to yield to the One who calls us, who offers us purity instead of guilt. He offers us peace instead of conflict. He offers us security and safety instead of a fear of judgment. So trust Him. If you have trusted Jesus then let Augur's words remind you of the wonder and the majesty of the One who made you and the One who's called you and loves you. Worship Him with amazement and joy.